So how many of us can relate to the feeling of dying? And uh, no, this is not going to be an extended promotion of the Chromebook. In fact, uh, for you Apple users out there, I'll give you a little bit of uh, airtime as well. You see, a couple of months ago, uh, my iPhone was in a state of dying. And like we saw in the clip, you know, not just like the electronics do and they need to be plugged in and recharged every once in a while. It was the kind of dying, you know, I'd go from one moment of having maybe 40 or even 60% battery life to the next moment, I'd go and try to use my phone and I would see this. You can throw that picture on the screen. We're used to this kind of image in our sort of device age. I needed to plug into the source of power. In fact, my phone at the time, it couldn't go very many minutes without being plugged into the source of power. But beyond our electronics, though, uh, I wonder about how many of us sometimes feel like in our lives, we can actually relate to a bit of a, a feeling of dying. Not just that we're, we're tired or short on energy, although that can be true often, but in, in a deeper way, you know, relationally emotionally, maybe even sometimes spiritually, as though we're disconnected from the source of power and possibility that can make us everything we're meant to be and for life to become all that it's meant to become. This morning, we're, we're picking up off our starting point service that we had last week, which if you came last week and you're here today because of that, you're inspired to come back. We're so glad you're here as we're now into this journey that we're calling Ordinary Revival, what really is a month-long journey as a community. And hopefully you have your, your Ordinary Revival journal with you or you're able to download it at the digital version. Um, and we're into this series because we believe that as people, we need renewing. We need recharging. We need revival. We want to experience more of the supernatural life of God in our lives. But we're using uh, this phrase, ordinary revival, uh, very intentionally because I don't know what uh, comes to mind for you when you think of the word revival or maybe even like spiritual revival, so to speak. Um, sometimes we can associate it with, with things that, that can feel a little bit out there. Or maybe you've seen a, a TV evangelist and people speaking in, in odd languages or falling down, that kind of thing. Um, I think usually we associate the idea of spiritual revival with like a moment in time event that is, is, needs to be characterized by the fantastic or the dramatic or the charismatic. And although we believe God can use those kinds of moments, could even do miraculous things in, in moments and events like that, I think even more significantly and probably more relate, relatably to sort of our everyday experience, we believe that like a life of revival, that sort of ongoing way of life of recharging, renewing, and reviving, we believe that that actually begins in the ordinary, in the simple, often unnoticed aspects of our lives that reconnect us and keep us connected to the source. We started to see a little bit, this, a little bit of this last week uh, when we were looking at the, the early church in Acts chapter 2, where we saw this picture of ordinary people in ordinary places engaging in ordinary practices to tap into more of the supernatural heart of God. A, a community of people seeking to make what, what might otherwise be unnatural a little more natural in order to experience the supernatural. And so now as we get sort of rolling on this ordinary revival journey, this morning what we want to do is we want to talk about the ordinary practice of prayer. You see, the big idea this morning, what I want to talk about is this idea that I think ordinary revival begins with prayer 
and that anyone can learn to pray prayers of ordinary revival. That ordinary revival begins with prayer, but that anyone, no matter how ordinary you may feel, can learn to pray prayers of ordinary revival. Sort of in a similar mode to last week, to help us first wrap our heads around this idea that ordinary revival starts with prayer, I want to look no further than to the greatest example of revival that I know of in the person and work of Jesus. So we think of Jesus, we think of some of the, the big things we've heard about him doing, from walking on water, to raising the dead, to healing the sick, to feeding thousands, but also to just living a very whole and complete and perfectly sinless life. See, although Jesus was a human being like you and me, he lived this greatest experience and expression of the supernatural. And I believe it's in large part because Jesus embodied a life of prayer. He knew how to plug in to the source of power that was his heavenly father. And we see this uh, very early in the life and ministry of Jesus. In fact, in the very first gospel account about his life that was written, the gospel of Mark, in the very first chapter, uh, between multiple days of healing and caring for the hurting and broken, we, broken, we see this in Mark chapter 1, verse 35. It says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. You see, Jesus was a guy who was known for finding ordinary moments to go to ordinary places to make space for the ordinary practice of prayer. You know, we don't know, it might not have happened uh, otherwise if Jesus had just kind of gone along with the sort of natural flow and rhythm of life, following the crowds and the culture as we so easily can. You know, it's not easy to get up before dark, like in an example like that. But with a little intentionality, Jesus invested in what otherwise may have seemed unnatural so that it could become a natural part of his life and he could remain plugged into the supernatural presence and power of God, of God his Father. And in Jesus' life, this is a habit we see sort of littered throughout the Gospels and throughout the stories of his life. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Like, you might be thinking, hey, well, that, that's Jesus. That's great for Jesus. In a lot of ways, that's got to be maybe a little bit easier uh, for him. But, but I'm not Jesus. What about me? You know, where do we start if we're going to try to learn how to pray? Because this, this could seem a little bit challenging. And if you can... If you feel that at all, kind of coming into this conversation, you know, I think we're in good company. Because even those who were closest to Jesus, his students and friends often referred to as his disciples, some of whom literally wrote the book on Jesus, they had the same question. They had the same challenge and same frustration. And we see this kind of come to light in, an, in another gospel account of Jesus uh, in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. There it says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. Once again, ordinary practice in an, in an ordinary place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. If this prayer thing is such a big deal, if we constantly see you engaging in it, embodying it, and practicing a life of prayer, if this has anything to do with the incredible supernatural life of revival that we see you living and bringing to earth, a life that we long for too, could you just show us how to pray? Show us how you do it. 
And the thing is, Jesus, if we're honest, prayer usually seems pretty elusive. It can feel challenging or confusing, maybe even boring at times. And I think for some of us, it can maybe even feel like we, we don't know if it actually does anything. I think that's a real feeling. In fact, I sat across the table in a tearful conversation with a friend this week who said he was at a place where you know, right now, whether he prays or whether he doesn't pray, it just, it, he's not sure it's making a difference. So Jesus, when we see your life, it looks like the power of God is flowing through you. Could you teach us to pray like you? This is the request of the disciples. And if this morning, if we're going to believe that ordinary revival begins with prayer and that anyone can learn to play, pray prayers of ordinary revival, maybe, just maybe, this could be our request too. Lord, teach us to pray. So coming into this, don't feel bad uh, if you don't know how to pray or maybe you've never even tried praying. Or maybe you, you have tried, but you feel like somehow you're not, you're not good at it or your prayers aren't effective in some way. I think we can relate in that experience. In fact, recently I uh, downloaded a, a prayer app that a, a friend recommended to me. It's called Echo. Uh, and it's intended to kind of help you track some prayer requests, have reminders of when you pray, follow some feeds to help you, you know, in, in prayers and things like that. And it, ha- it, it is helpful. But it was interesting. When I first uh, downloaded it and created an account and got online with it, um, very quickly I was given this helpful notification. We can put that picture on the screen. I don't know if you can see what that says there. It says, you currently have no answered prayers. You currently have no answered prayers. I thought, oh, that's a helpful reminder for how my prayer life can feel. But I think this can be true for us at times. And if you've ever felt like that, even Jesus' closest friends and followers, they felt like that. If we felt like we're struggling to grow in prayer, it's okay. And we can come to Jesus and say, help us, as they did as well. Now also, kind of before we get into it, um, When it comes to this idea of revival that we're talking about, there's one other thing that's interesting to note about the nature of the disciples' request. You see, this was more than a request just to learn to like pray the right words. This wasn't about asking for sort of a magic formula of prayer, of just putting the right syllables together. You see, in the first century, all rabbis and spiritual teachers had disciples, just like Jesus. And kind of in their discipling, they all would have taught their disciples to pray. Just as that passage mentioned that John the Baptist uh, had done. And they all, even within their Jewish tradition, they would have had different bents or angles or emphases, kind of different shapes to their prayer. And the disciples saw Jesus and they saw something that stood out in his life that we need to, we need to understand what your prayer would be. Because when a, a rabbi taught their disciples to pray, it was actually a way to show them what they believed life was all about. What the world is kind of intended to be shaped like. What the center of gravity is and the core for sort of tapping in to life with God. The key to reviving rather than dying. So we need to understand that uh, teach us to pray actually equals teach us to live. The request of Jesus to say teach us to pray equals teach us to live. And that's what's so powerful about Jesus' approach to prayer. That's why prayer is the starting point for ordinary revival because not only can it shape our prayers, it can shape our lives as well. So to help make this practical, really for the the rest of my time sharing with you, what we want to do is take a look at the, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray in response to that request. And it's a prayer that we've come to know as the Lord's Prayer. That's kind of what we refer to it as. 
And for some of us, uh, this is going to be brand new. We've maybe never heard of the Lord's Prayer. We've not heard the words of the Lord's Prayer. And if that's you, uh, I hope that this serves as a really just helpful kind of on-ramp and starting point to learn to pray simply and sincerely, but ultimately in a way that I think can connect us to the heart of God. Now, for others of us in our, in our culture, in the faith community, uh, this prayer is, is very familiar. You know, maybe you grew up hearing it in church. Um, maybe you prayed it around uh, dinner tables. Um, if I was a family growing up, something like that. Maybe you even recited it in school. That was a thing, you know, re- reaching back a little bit further. And maybe these words, they've actually become a little bit too familiar. Because the thing is, sometimes familiar uh, can, can fail us. Sometimes familiar can cause us to miss the forest for the trees. And so if that's you, uh, I hope as we take just a brief look at the words of this prayer once again, I hope that it allows you to just kind of scratch beneath the surface, to kind of get below the waterline of the iceberg and see that there is potential, so much potential for fresh revival and renewal in your own life. And hopefully all of us can see that this prayer is not about practicing recitation, but it's about participating in revolution, in renewal, revival, and transformation. So in response uh, to the disciples' request, Lord, teach us to pray. Jesus began like this. He said, Our Father in heaven, holy be your name. Our Father in heaven, holy be your name. Now once again, for some of us, these are words we've heard so many times that they kind of flow in one ear and out the other without a second thought. But I want to for a minute just camp out on this first line and invite you, if you can, to try putting on the filter of Jesus' original hearers. Because to them, when Jesus started to teach them to pray with this line, this was absolutely radical. You see, Jesus didn't start by addressing God as, as sacred one or as almighty of the universe or like angelic Lord of hosts. He didn't even say Yahweh, which would have been the word and kind of name for God that his disciples were most familiar with. No, he addressed God as father, as daddy, as an intimate parent who is always looking out for their kids and adores every minute when they look to him. It's like if we're going to pray, Jesus is letting us know right out of the gate, there's someone there. There's someone listening to us. There's someone who cares about us. There's someone who exudes a heart of love towards us. And it also lets us know, uh, because that that first phrase, our father, it's actually originally translated father of us or father of all, that everyone coming to this father is a child of God. That there are no orphans, there are no outcasts, there are no misfits. And the phrase in heaven, it doesn't actually mean that God is far away. Unlike how we normally think of heaven as this uh, potentially far away place you may wish to go uh, when you die. That's not how it was understood as Jesus presented it here. It was known as the, the space that God fills, that he dwells in, and that it actually can be very much all around us. And that God wants it to seep into our lives to a greater degree. It means his loving presence is near and at hand, ready to revive us. And holy be your name, it prays that the reputation of the Father would be upheld. That because of how people use and carry and represent his name in the world, that this image of the loving parent, that that would be what people think of when they think of God. 
that they would feel like it's, it's worth running to him and praying to him rather than running away from him or avoiding to him, that this is a God worth praying to. This is some of the revival embedded in that opening line of the prayer. Loving parent who is close, may people see you for who you really are. Then Jesus prayed, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Jesus goes on to teach us to pray that the kingdom and the will of the Father would take root right here. Right here in the everyday ordinariness of earth just as in heaven. Now this too was a radical thing to teach people to pray. You know why? It's it's because Jesus actually already lived in a kingdom. He lived in multiple kingdoms, kingdoms that had come and been established and had no interest in a different kingdom coming in their place. Jesus lived in an imperial kingdom of authority and power and conquest that was ruled by Caesar and enforced by the Roman Empire. Jesus lived in in a political kingdom of economic control. Uh, It was the the kingdom of King Herod that was kind of the puppet king of the king of the Jews in Jesus' area. Jesus also lived in a religious kingdom that kind of leveraged spiritual manipulation and abuse, all brokered by the spiritual elite known as the Pharisees and the high priests. Jesus taught his followers to pray for a new kingdom, a revival from these kingdoms, a new kind of reign and rule, and a new way to order the world around love and justice, particularly for the downtrodden and the powerless and the kingdomless, that they would have God's kingdom come. And we have to understand, this is is still radical for us. Because if we're honest, we we live in kingdoms as well. We know that we live in kingdoms of government and politics and power. We got to remember, we live in kingdoms of of money and economy and success. We live in kingdoms of consumerism, um, entertainment, and any of our own ambitions and desires. We even create some of our own religious kingdoms trying to determine who's in and who's out or in our social circles who fits and who doesn't. But if we're going to pray, Jesus invites us to pray for and therefore express our allegiance to a better kingdom, a revival kingdom. And if we're going to want to experience from this revival, we need to realize we live in these kingdoms and we need to be willing to let them go to see his come, to have our will and desires become more aligned with him, to see the earth become everything it's intended to be. That's what makes this part of the prayer such a prayer for revival. Next, Jesus prays, uh, give us today our daily bread. This is where the prayer kind of shifts from things that, that, that God wants to see happen in the world to things that we need to experience in our lives. It starts to get a little more practical to our daily experience. Now, if you're like me, um, Maybe this is just generally when you think about prayer, when you think about maybe praying a prayer like this, we often approach it kind of like this. Kind of like, God, you know, please, if you're there, if you're, if you're able, if I'm good enough, would you please just provide some of the things I, I, I need? Can you, can you do that, please, God? We treat it like our, our prayers are these requests that are only going to be granted depending on how well we ask them or how polite we are. But what's so interesting about, frankly, all of these petitions is that they're not worded like that. Jesus didn't intend for them to come across that way. 
They're all written actually in the imperative form where you could see them a little bit more like commands, where it's a way of saying, do this, God, do this. It's kind of like the child that walks uh, into their kitchen and says to their parent, like, what's for supper? Which is full expectation that a loving parent is willing and able to provide. This is how Jesus says we can come to the Father. And when we learn to pray with this attitude of dependence and, and of humble dependence, I think this has the potential to revive our needs from a place of worry and anxiety to a place of trust and gratitude. Who doesn't want that? To know that our needs don't have to be a source of worry in our lives. We can confidently know that God is in the business of providing for his children. And this is not just a prayer asking for the provision of physical bread, although it is that. But Jesus was once described as the bread of life, and he wants to bring healing and comfort and protection, wisdom, clarity, all the things that he can provide, we can come for and ask uh, him to do. And one thing to note on this line, when it comes to, to living the ordinary revival part of this prayer, remembering that teach us to pray equals teach us to live. The reality is, when it comes to some of our physical needs in this part of the world, most of us know where our next meal is coming from. But like in Jesus' day where there was many poor people surrounding him and following him and looking to him for hope, there are many people in need in our world. And when we pray this prayer, we have to realize, first of all, it's about our need and not our wants. And it's not a prayer for I and me. It's a prayer for us and our. And so this prayer, it it invites us to pray not just for ourselves, but for others. And as we learn to pray it, it calls us to live in such a way that enough would be provided for all. And wouldn't that be an incredible revival in our world if, if things, enough bread was provided for everybody? That's what we pray when we pray, give us today our daily bread. And then Jesus says, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. I think we all know uh, what it feels like to be in debt to some degree. That it's kind of like, you know, trying to, to drag a weight around with us or sort of feel the, the weight of it on our shoulders. In fact, I, I don't know if you know this, but uh, the, the actual literal translation of the word mortgage, does anyone know what that is? The word mortgage actually means death grip death grip. And I think some of us feel that sometimes with payments and interest and amortization. Sorry to the bankers in the room. Sorry to anyone who is thinking of getting into the spring housing market as well. Um, a death grip. Keep that in mind. Because I think the fastest way to feel like we're dying is to live in a place of indebtedness. And it's not just true of our own debts that we owe, but it's true of our experience with others who we think owe us. You know, when someone owes us something, it kind of changes the, the air and space between us. It makes us feel like somehow we have to circle every conversation back to the outstanding debt, wondering if it's going to be repaid. It causes us to talk behind backs, to hold grudges and hard feelings. And over time, it makes us vulnerable to resentment and bitterness, desperation, and sometimes even violence. See, debts are the exact opposite of revival. And we're not just talking financially. We're talking relationally. We're talking spiritually. And I think we know we're often in this perpetual state of debt. Debt to God that we haven't fully lived up to the person we're meant to be. 
Debt to ourselves that we haven't always treated ourselves kindly or loved ourselves well. And debt to others. We certainly haven't loved our neighbor, neighbors even as much as we love ourselves. But Jesus teaches us that we can come to the Father and we can be released of these debts. That the slate can be wiped clean daily as often as we pray this. And we're called to release others on a daily basis as well. And this can be an intimidating line to pray because in some ways it seems conditional as though God's forgiveness of us is somehow conditional on how we forgive others. But that, that's not what's meant here. The forgiveness of God is offered freely and graciously and unconditionally to us. But I think what Jesus knows and he is teaching us to pray that an experience, a true experience of forgiveness and us living into the freedom of it is so correlated to the degree to which we can not only embrace it for ourselves, but extend it to others. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. I love the way author and theologian uh, Lewis Meads says it. He says, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and then to discover that the prisoner is you. This line in the prayer says, God, would you unlock us, unleash us, lift the weights off of us and help us to do the same with others so we can all live in freedom together. And finally, we pray, would you lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In these last three moves of the prayer, Jesus first teaches us to to depend on God for our needs in the present. Give us today our daily bread. Then he invites us to trust God to, to wipe the slate clean of our debts and our mistakes and our missteps of the past, of yesterday. And then in this final part of the prayer, he invites us to, to ask God to lead us into a better and more life-giving future. That's what this final portion is about. Asking God to revive us from the hang-ups and habits that can drain and decay our lives. And it's a prayer to give us confidence that as we go, as we live, God will be with us and he will lead us. We don't need to walk around with a paralyzing fear of failure as we so often do. Now, one thing to be clear on in this part of the prayer that can get confused at times, this isn't about asking God for, for God to not tempt us, God to not uh, find ways to, to sort of trip us up as though that's what he's seeking to do. And a, and a helpful way, I think, to realize that is to realize that the, the word we see translated here as temptation can also be translated as, as testing of what to do, how to navigate the tests of life. And so another way to pray it could be, Father, as we face the tests and challenges of this life, as we will, keep us from giving in to the easy way out, which can so often be the same as the evil way out. You see, Jesus knows that life is full of tests. And so he says, let's ask the Father to not allow these tests to become temptations for us. I'll give you a, a real life example. Um, we are in the spring now. We're into spring season. Days are a little longer. Things are slowly getting a little warmer. Feels good. It's also income tax return uh, season. So just kind of throw a wet blanket out there for you. Um, so I don't know if you've already done your income taxes or you will do, but we're in this season where we've got to file our income tax returns. And this is a, a natural test of life, of character, because it requires reporting and claiming. But the evil one wants to turn this test into a temptation. To tempt us to cut the corner, 
to not report the whole amount, to find the loophole, to fudge the number. And so, in this line of the prayer, we pray, Father, when I'm faced with this test, as I will be, don't let it become a temptation where I might settle for less than becoming the person of integrity you've made me to be. Revive me with maturity and faithfulness. This is the revival dynamic of this part of the prayer because who of us doesn't want to be able to persevere through the tests of life? Who of us doesn't want to be known for becoming increasingly mature and faithful in our following of Jesus? Who of us doesn't want to be a person who brings light where otherwise there is darkness? Our Father in heaven, holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This, This is the prayer. This is the prayer that I believe can be a starting point for ordinary revival. This is a prayer that any ordinary person can learn to pray. It's both simple and profound. It's both familiar yet endlessly new and can be endlessly relevant. It's as recitable as a religious routine, but as revolutionary as a new world order. And our hope is that we could learn to pray a little more like this. And in a moment, uh, we're going to have a chance to to try that, a chance to practice that together. Because frankly, the best way to learn to pray is by praying. We learn to pray by engaging in it like so many things in our lives. Now, before we get there, before I close, there's there's probably kind of one more question remaining on our hearts. And that's, if if I'm going to take the risk to try to lean into something um, that might not be natural for me currently, try to make it a little more natural, if I'm going to take the risk of, of trying to pray and pray in the shape of this prayer, you know, simply and sincerely, daily and deeply, the question is, is it going to make any difference? Is it actually going to produce any of the revival that we so desperately long for and need when we see the change, when we see the supernatural in our lives? I know it's a bold thing to try to make any kind of predictions. And even as a pastor, there's not too many prayers I'd risk guaranteeing you could see come to pass in the way that you may expect or long for. But here's the thing. I believe, I sincerely believe, if we were to begin to pray this with intent and alive and humble hearts, and even more importantly, if we began to live this, allow this prayer to shape our lives, I can't help but trust that God is going to start bending our lives toward revival. It may not be flashy. It may not be sudden. It may not come with fanfare and fireworks. But over time, I believe It will happen to a greater degree. This is exactly what God is wanting to do in the world. This is what he is about. And leaning into this prayer is like plugging into the eternal power source, remaining plugged in and actually becoming like a portable charging station in the world to offer renewal and life to others who are experiencing dying in their own lives. And not only do I have confidence because I believe this is what God is trying to do in the world, I believe it's possible because I actually see glimpses of it in our community. I see it 
and Linda, who although she grew up without a father in her life, through faith and perseverance, she's come to know the loving presence of her heavenly father. And I see how that just exudes and flows from her when she leads our community in a song like Who You Say I Am, declaring that we are all children of God. Our father in heaven. I see it in in Stephen who seeks to to carry himself in the marketplace with a a name of God upholding and a a your kingdom come attitude and how he interacts in his business and with the people he employs. And it's opening up doors. It's creating conversations for him to pursue his passions and his gifts and even to share people or Jesus with people in the marketplace in ways he could have never imagined. God, holy be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. I see it in John, who uh, humbly, and quietly, and consistently forfeits what could be more bread piled on top of his own table by employing folks from the margins in his business so that they can have enough bread for today. I see it in young moms and families in our community who when uh, someone maybe is celebrating a new baby being added to the family or in times of crisis or grief, provide meals for each other in those moments of need. God, give us today our daily bread. I see it in Neil. Neil's a police officer in our community who uh, nearly lost his life due to a, a gunshot wound on the job. And he's now gone through a courageous and intentional and I would say miraculous journey of pursuing forgiveness, of being able to offer forgiveness face to face to the person who shot him. And we're going to hear more of Neil's story on Good Friday and do not miss it. God, forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. I see it in friends of mine like Sean, and I actually heard a couple of stories like this this week. But I think of Sean, who in an ongoing battle with addiction, I believe in some amount of answer to my prayer and his as well, has had moments of triumph over testing. So much so that he's even left cash behind. It's a little hard come by for him that he'd already handed over to his dealer to walk away from another hit. God, would you lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? These are the signs and wonders. These are the ordinary miracles. This is the supernatural in our midst. And dare I say, I've even seen some of it in my own life as I've learned to lean into and try to live out of this prayer to a greater degree. I believe Jesus has used it and is still using it to revive one part of my life at a time. Making me at least slightly more willing to submit my ways to his and at least slightly less prideful and stubborn in my own. Making me at least slightly more generous and at least slightly less indulgent than I used to be. I believe making me at least slightly more forgiving and gracious towards others who I feel like owe me a debt, whether big or small, and experience a greater sense of the freedom of forgiveness in my heart and hopefully theirs 
as well. And by making me at least slightly less tempted to succumb to the easy ways out, and at least slightly more transformed in my character, behavior, and obedience to Jesus. This is some of the ordinary revival that I can share with you from my experience. I think this is how ordinary revival can begin through prayer, in a prayer that anyone, no matter how ordinary, can learn to pray, and just in a moment we'll have a chance to try it together. And so your invitation is to pray it, is to live it, and ultimately to experience more of the revival in your life as well. Lord Jesus, we thank you that all you want to do is revive us from any of our places of dying. Would you teach us to pray? Would you teach us to live? May we plug into you as the only source that will never drain or die. In your powerful name we pray. Amen.